Welcome to the ACS Memory Palace. I'm Lucy. Many thanks to Nate DeMeo for his inspiration. We sat in our assigned seats, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, back straight and heads facing forward. The nurses hovered over us with anger and dominance in their eyes, brooms held in two hands. Fourteen hours of silence, but fear and anger echoed throughout the room. It didn't matter if we were meant to be there or not, nor if we felt abused within the facility. No one would listen. If we screamed, we wouldn't be heard. If we ran, our blood would be shed. And if we went mad, our chances of leaving became slimmer and slimmer. There was no way out. It was 1887 in the US, where women were encouraged to be caretakers, preparing hot kettles of herbal tea before their spouse was to arrive from work, where women did not have the right to vote, tied to the leash of the men in their lives. This was the life women were destined to live by, but not Elizabeth Crokin Seaman, better known as Nellie Bly. Far after Bly was a small town girl in Pennsylvania, and her father's death forced her family to move to Pittsburgh where she would then jumpstart her career as a journalist, she lived in New York City, a city that never slept and was always beaming with stories begging to be told. What caught Bly's attention was not the latest political debacle, nor was it the newest show to hit the stage of Broadway, but the abuse that went unnoticed, unheard, within the walls of the New York City Insane Asylum. Back in the late 1800s, the word lunatic was an umbrella term for all mental illnesses. If you had any mental aberration, be it depression, autism, Tourette's, you would be labeled as a lunatic and sent to an insane asylum. Thus, Bly took it upon herself to expose the asylum in her first undercover investigation. Ten days, 240 hours, bound to the eerie walls of Blackwell's Island. Looking at her reflection in the mirror, she practiced those faraway expressions that she knew would radiate crazy air all around her, that people couldn't help but stare at. She kept her eyes widened, eyebrows raised, and worsened her posture. Bly needed to make them believe she was a lunatic. When she felt ready, she sent herself to a boarding house. She ran around frantically, saying she was from Cuba and was searching for missing trucks. And as expected, they kicked her out and sent her to Blackwell's Island. The second she entered those cavernous walls, the point of no return, she knew there was no going back from this, and no guarantee that she would even be able to leave. The trees outside were shriveled and dead, as if it were straight out of a horror film. The walls eventually closed in, and she was thrown in with the other patients in the facility. The lighting was dim and flickered constantly. The brick walls were dark and brooding, mold growing in the corners. It was like a prison. As the clock ticked and time went on, she was shivering, not because of fear, but because of the freezing temperatures within the facility. Everyone around her looked blue from the cold, goosebumps rippling on their skin. Looking at the faces of the women around her, they looked subhuman. Their faces were ghoulish, filled with sorrow and fury. Despite Bly being around so many people, she had never felt more isolated in her life. She rarely got a ray of sunshine from those small barred windows. It was as if she was trapped in a nightmare. This may have only been a terrible dream for Bly, but this was many people's reality. With the air around her being frigid, you can only imagine how the water was. One of Bly's fellow patients in the facility, Mrs. Cotter, was caught crying by one of the nurses. Thus, the nurses took it upon themselves to silence her. She threw her arms up at the nurse's violent smacks, using bent arms to block each one as they came, from left to right. Her legs bent to attempt to kick them away, but each smack made her resist less and less until she was a mere shell of herself. 
all the fight left in her drained. They put a bag over her head, tied her legs and feet, and threw her in a bath, holding her down. Her teeth chattered as her flesh went blue with cold. Her lungs filled up with water and her chest went frozen, unable to reach the air above her, the tall figures above her pushing her deeper and deeper into the water. She gasped for air, shivered, and quaked from the cold. When Miss Cotter went to complain to the doctors, they told her that her diseased brain was causing her to imagine things. She had no hope. Although under different circumstances than Mrs. Cotter, Bly too had to submerge herself in an ice bath along with the other patients. When she got out, completely numbed, they poured three more cold buckets of that filthy cold water on her head, her nose, eyes, and ears filled with that stinging polluted water as the nurses dragged her and the others around the bathroom, violently yanking her by the hair if she wasn't quick enough. Bly was quaking from the cold, her skin covered in goosebumps. For the first time, she actually felt like a lunatic. Afterwards, she shared two towels with the 42 other women in the facility. After the chilling baths, they put Bly and the other patients into poorly fitted undergarments, despite the autumn chill. They sat Bly and the others down in straight back benches where they could not communicate with each other, nor could they move from six in the morning to eight at night, being treated to bland and contaminated food. The benches were incredibly uncomfortable to sit on, so you can imagine the pain they were in after their 14 hours were over. Dished in front of her was a wretch scoop and dark blackened bread with thick mold growing through it. One time, during her lunch, she saw eight thin legs pierce through her bread. She quickly dropped it to find the spider crawling throughout her food. It's safe to say she didn't eat that day. With each day passing by, Bly made an effort to talk to the women around her whenever she could. Some were suicidal, violent, or psychotic. Many were immigrants that could not speak English, mistakenly put in the facility. Others weren't able to make ends meet and thought this was a poorhouse. But even for those who were meant to be there, it was plain to see that the conditions of the asylum were not helping them, but rather driving them into a state of madness that was foreign to them prior to their arrival. As the temperatures dropped further and the sun lowered, Bly attempted to get a good night's sleep, but it was near impossible. Bly listened to the woman next to her weep, begging God to let them die. Her voice was strained as her whispers turned to cries. The pain in her voice left a pit in Bly's stomach. She could never imagine being stuck here for as long as she had, isolated from society, losing your family, friends for something out of your control, only to be met with abuse, suffering, and malnourishment. Bly was relieved once her 10 days were over. Thus, the New York world arranged for her release using their team of lawyers. Although she did feel sorrowful leaving all those women behind, knowing full well the abuse they would continue to experience beyond her exit, she knew exactly how to fight back. Two days later, the newsboys held up Bly's headline, the first part in her series, Nellie Bly's experience in the Blackwell's Island Asylum. She used her words as spears, fighting back alongside those silenced voices, beckoning for help from inside the asylum. Her explosive story forced the government to investigate the facility, and despite the asylum's efforts to cover up the mistreatment, they believed Bly and added one million to the asylum's budget. She drove herself to the brink of insanity to expose the injustice that was being committed. She had done what journalists Charles Dickens and Margaret Fuller failed to do in their articles on the same asylum. She bravely paved the trail for female journalists to come and raise the light of knowledge and freedom in one of the world's darkest places to do so.